All right, welcome folks. Welcome one and all. My name is Dr. Tawfiq Haddad. I am the director of the Council for British Research in the Levant's East Jerusalem Institute known as the Kenyan Institute. Uh, welcome to today's webinar, uh, which will deal with the subject of using the master's tools to dismantle the master's house, international law and Palestinian liberation. Today's talk will be given by Dr. Ralph Wild from the Faculty of Law at UCL. So the Council for British Research in the Levant is an independent UK research charity and membership organization that exists to conduct, support, and promote humanities and social science research on the Levant. Uh, we're part of the British Academy's International Research Institutes, of which there are seven of them uh, located throughout uh, the old British Empire. We have over a hundred year history in the region today, uh, including an office in London and a, uh, another office, the British Institute of Amman in Amman itself. And today's webinar is being brought to you from the Kenyan Institute in East Jerusalem uh, with both myself and Dr. Ralph Wild in house uh, at the uh, Kenyan Institute itself. Uh, to introduce our speaker today, Dr. Ralph Wild is a member of the Faculty of Law at UCL which is part of the University of London, where he teaches and researches on international law and convenes the quote, decolonizing law public lecture series. He is currently a residential fellow at the Council for British Research in the Levant here in East Jerusalem. And his current, his current research focuses on the extraterritorial application of international human rights law and international law aspects of the Israel-Palestine situation. His previous work on the concept of trusteeship over people and territorial administration by international organizations includes his book, International Territorial Administration, How Trusteeship and the Civilizing Mission Never Went Away. That came out from Oxford University Press. He is also an awardee of the Certificate of Merit of the American Society of International Law and previously served on the executive bodies of the American and European Societies of International Law and the International Law Association. He is a past winner of the Philip Leverhulme Prize as, uh, by the Leverhulme Trust. So a, a distinguished guest speaker today, which we're very happy to have. Today's talk is based on an article that came out from the Palestine Yearbook of International Law online. With that in mind, uh, I'm looking very much forward to Dr. Wild's um, uh, presentation today on his uh, article, which I just had the pleasure of reading. So please take it away, Ralph. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, it's a great pleasure uh, to be here. Um, Dr. Haddad and I are speaking from Sheikh Jarrah in Al-Quds, occupied Palestine, just around the corner from St. Joseph Hospital, where the attack on the pallbearers of Shirin Abu Akhla's coffin took place a week and a half ago. When Palestinian human rights activist Diana Butu was interviewed on Al Jazeera on the killing of Shirin Abu Akhla, she said that we have to remember that it was only possible because the Israeli soldiers were in Janine in the first place. In this, of course, she was reminding the world about the illegitimacy of the occupation itself. She was seeking to counter an approach that would focus on particular horrific incidents only without also situating such incidents within the broader context of the occupation and also understanding that as oppression and violence. 
In today's lecture, based on a new article, as Dr. Haddad mentioned, in the Palestine Yearbook of International Law, I will ask how this crucial distinction made by Diana Butu is addressed by the rules of international law. This forms part of a broader critical treatment set out in the article, which I will summarize today, of how international law relates to the subject of the liberation of the Palestinian people. The article has the same name as this lecture, using the master's tools to dismantle the master's house, international law and Palestinian liberation. It's available to download and the link from this can be found online on the website for the yearbook. The Palestine Yearbook of International Law is published out of Berzeit University in occupied Palestine. It's a privilege and an honor to have my work in the yearbook. And I want to pay tribute to the fantastic editors, notably Nimer Sultani and Atta Hindi, for the extremely valuable feedback and other editorial support they provided. All those with the great fortune to have Nimer and or Atta as their colleagues are extremely fortunate. My article aside, the yearbook is a fantastic peer-reviewed law journal publishing on all areas of international law. And I would strongly encourage my international law colleagues to consider publishing with it. Now it's commonplace to invoke and seek to enforce international law as a means of vindicating the rights of the Palestinian people, including fundamentally their right to liberation. Legal tools to dismantle the master's house of colonial oppression to borrow from Audrey Lord. Related to this common association of international law with emancipatory objectives is the idea that if only the law were enforced, emancipation would be realized. Or put differently, that the lack of Palestinian liberation is due to the violation of the law with impunity. But the international legal system is embedded with the ideology and techniques of imperialism and colonialism. This includes in its operation through an assumption of the legitimacy of the division of the world into sovereign states and often the basis on which it determines how boundaries between states are to be drawn. Is international law not then part of the master's house? Would the implementation of international law necessarily bring about Palestinian liberation? More fundamentally, is the conservative social institution of law compatible with transformatory emancipation? Freudian slip there, emancipation and occupation, I shall return to that. Lord insists that, and I quote, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. She cautions that, and I quote again, they may allow us temporarily to beat him at his own game, but they will never enable us to bring about genuine change. Given these challenges, the article provides a critical evaluation of what is at stake when international law is invoked in the context of the Palestinian struggle. How and to what extent does it speak to the fundamental question of Palestinian liberation? In the article, I disrupt the essentialized conception of the merits of the law suggesting some of the downsides of international law as commonly understood 
insofar as it relates to this fundamental question. In certain important respects, the starting point for international law on this subject is to accept Israeli statehood as a given. In consequence, Palestinian freedom must fit around and or be articulated in relation to Israel's needs. So for example, notably, the territory commonly understood by international lawyers to be covered by the international legal right of self-determination of the Palestinian people is that which is left of the territory of the Palestine mandate once Israel is taken into account. Based on the so-called Green Armistice Line of 1949 or pre-1967, i.e. the West Bank, including East Jerusalem and Gaza. Indeed, the word occupation in international law means a situation where a state controls territory over which it does not enjoy sovereignty. So if the word is being used in the international legal sense, the focus is only on the West Bank, including East Jerusalem and Gaza, not also the rest of the land between the river and the sea, although West Jerusalem is also placed in a special category for a different legal reason. This then is at odds with how the word occupation is commonly used here by the Palestinian people which is to describe the larger place and the situation in it. Moreover, invoking the law of occupation, occupation law, international humanitarian law generally, and international human rights law, as the basis for claims for accountability concerning how Palestinians are treated by Israelis, necessarily implies a recognition of Israel's statehood since the rules from these areas of international law being invoked are largely those that apply only to states. So in what I describe in the article as a form of international law gaslighting, in order to invoke these accountability rules, the Palestinian people are required to implicitly affirm Israeli statehood. When of course Israel does not recognize Palestinian statehood, and indeed, it is such statehood that the occupation here prevents the Palestinian people from realizing effectively. Furthermore, this implicit recognition has to be made despite the fact that it is of course statehood on the part of Israel that was created through and continues to operate on the basis of the Nekba with the consequent position of many Palestinian people as refugees and the treatment of Palestinian people within Israel as second-class citizens. Moreover, occupation law, the rules of international humanitarian law generally, and most of international human rights law, and also international criminal law concerning war crimes and the prohibition of apartheid, are only concerned with how ostensibly humane Israel's treatment of the Palestinians is. Even with respect to the West Bank and Gaza, that, as I mentioned, is what international lawyers state to be the territorial extent of Palestinian self-determination, these rules are not concerned with ending the Israeli occupation, merely, as I said, ostensibly humanizing it within an overall framework of domination. 
usually the most that international lawyers will focus on beyond this accountability framework is that international law also prohibits Israel from annexing this territory of claiming formal sovereignty over it, rendering it part of Israel. Because of this, insofar as Israel has purported to annex East Jerusalem, where Dr. Haddad and I are speaking from, this has been in international law ineffective. But this still leaves the fact of Israel's control over East Jerusalem and the rest of the West Bank on a non-sovereign basis, the occupation, which has of course been in existence for over half a century. The common view amongst many, including many international lawyers who I would suggest should know better, is that the question of ending the occupation of the West Bank is a matter of politics only, not also international law. And therefore ending things can and will only happen when there is a peace agreement. In the meantime, Israel is somehow entitled to maintain control even if it cannot formally annex any or part of this territory. And so during this period, the supposed utility of international law is only to serve as a basis for criticizing particular incidents of violations of individual and collective rights by Israel, using the rules that I mentioned. International lawyers do not tend to invoke international law to criticize the very existence of the authority itself. This is an entirely mistaken view of international law. What it ignores, conveniently for Israel, is that a state is only entitled in international law to control territory that is not its own sovereign territory on the basis of the international law of self-defense. This is a military occupation, and as such is, to use the language of international law, a use of force. The use of force in international law is a sort of euphemistic term for war. In international law, a use of force is only permitted if it is in self-defense. And the use of force in self-defense is only legally permitted if there is an actual or imminent threat and the use of force involved, here a full military occupation, is necessary and proportionate to that threat. The occupation of the West Bank is manifestly outside the scope of what is permitted here. In consequence, it is an unlawful use of force, an aggression. Entirely the same violation of international law that Russia is committing in Ukraine as I, I deliver this lecture. And of course, it is an egregious one given its duration. What this means is that the very exercise of authority and control by Israel here in East Jerusalem and the rest of the West Bank is in and of itself illegitimate, illegal. In other words, Israel has no right to exercise authority here at all. So the way that Israel then exercises this authority, how it treats the Palestinian people, covered by those other rules of international law I mentioned, is in one important sense a secondary matter, because the authority is itself illegal. Let me give an example. 
The horrific killing of Shirin Abu Akhla in Jenin and the dreadful attack by Israeli soldiers on the pallbearers of her coffin near here in St. Joseph Hospital just over a week ago. The common approach taken by many, particularly international observers, of the killing and the attack on the pallbearers is to analyze these particular incidents in terms of whether or not, in each case, the force use was justified, including in international law. So in the case of the killing of Shirin Abu Akhla, whether or not it's permissible to target journalists, or whether somehow her killing might have been permissible or not as collateral damage. And in the violence against the pallbearers, whether this was necessary and proportionate as a response to the supposed security need in that situation. And in both cases, applying the tests from the laws of war and international human rights law. And the suggested conclusion by many is, has been that the killing and the attack were unjustified and unlawful. Journalists cannot be targeted. There was no security need in St. Joseph Hospital in the first place that required the soldiers to respond, let alone respond in the way that they did in the violence against the pallbearers. Whereas this may be the case, focusing only at this level of analysis ignores the more fundamental point, which as I mentioned at the beginning, Diana Butu pointed out when commenting on the killing of Shireen Abu Akhla, that we have to remember that this killing was only possible because the Israeli soldiers were in Janine in the first place. The point I want to stress today is that this broader context the occupation itself, and understanding the occupation as itself oppression and violence is also the subject of international law. Actually, the very presence of the soldiers in Jenin and Sheikh Jarrah and their exercise of authority was in and of itself unlawful in international law as a general matter, regardless of how they exercised this authority. They had no right to be in these places at all, since Israel has no right to exercise its authority in the West Bank in general and East Jerusalem in particular at all. When incidents like these are only scrutinized in terms of how unreasonable or unjustified or indeed barbaric the actions of the soldiers were, the more fundamental question of the legitimacy of the presence itself is not only ignored, there is also a danger that is actually somehow validated. It is operating on the same assumption as the Israelis, that their right to be here is not to be questioned, to only inquire into whether the particular action was reasonable or not. In order to speak to that fundamental question of the illegitimacy of the occupation itself, it's necessary to engage not with the laws of war, but the law on the use of force that I mentioned before, and to characterize this illegitimacy as an unlawful use of force and aggression, as I said, like the Russian aggression in um, Ukraine. However, most experts fail to address this area of law so making it more difficult to appreciate the significance of it, let alone to invoke and apply it. 
This enables the wait for an peace agreement alternative to have purchase as an operative norm. Moreover, making the challenge requires an assessment through a legal framework exclusively concerned with the question of Israel's security needs. Does Israel have a legitimate right to self-defense that would justify as necessary and proportionate a plenary military occupation? Using the law's tools, therefore, requires Palestinian people to frame their case for liberation not in terms of their perspective, but rather in terms of the illegitimacy of Israel's position. To make this argument, it's also necessary to invoke another area of international law, which is focused directly on the position of the Palestinian people, the law of self-determination. And in particular, what is called external self-determination, the right of a people to be free from the control of a state and to determine their own international status, for example, through independent statehood. It is only because the Palestinian people have the right of external self-determination in international law that the West Bank, including East Jerusalem, cannot be lawfully annexed by Israel. And insofar as Israel has purported to do this in East Jerusalem, it has not been, as I mentioned, legally effective. Equally, it's only because of the Palestinian right of external self-determination that Israel's use of force in occupying the West Bank, which obviously prevents that right from being meaningfully exercised, needs to meet the test I set out earlier in order to be legally justified. As it does not meet this test, as I've explained, then according to the international law of external self-determination, the Palestinian people are supposed to be immediately freed of the occupation. The occupation is supposed to end straight away because it has no right to be in existence or put, put differently, the very existence of it is illegal. This can pave the way for the limited version of freedom international law offers to the Palestinian people statehood in a territory outside the green line defined borders of Israel. However, even within this limited um, uh, uh, approach, it's difficult to find a receptive audience internationally for the self-determination component of the argument, despite the fact that conversely, there is near universal consensus that the Palestinian people have this right. In the article, I cover a range of factors that explain uh, this downgrading and ignoring of self-determination. Today, I'll give one example, which is in how the right is addressed in international human rights law. The jurisprudence of international human rights law, the authoritative decisions in, uh, interpreting human rights treaties by international courts and expert bodies downgrades and sometimes even completely ignores the significance of the right's external dimension. Such an approach is evident in the practice and statements of the two main international expert committees charged with monitoring the implementation of international human rights law, linked to the two global human rights covenants treaties, and two leading international human rights NGOs, Amnesty International, and Human Rights Watch.
just as with the exclusive occupation law focus, these bodies address second order issues only, without also considering whether the occupation is, in and of itself, a violation of self-determination. It is as if the Palestinian right to external self-determination does not exist. Moreover, paradoxically, when these bodies have addressed the rights of Palestinian citizens of Israel, this has partly included coverage of their right to participate in what they've conceptualized as the collective self-determination self unit of that state. Thus, Palestinian self-determination gains attention, but only indirectly, via participation in and as part of the collective self-determination unit of the Israeli people, another form of international law gaslighting. This brings things full circle, back to the starting point of this lecture, Israeli statehood and the legal consequences that flow from its recognition, which in this case is, means Israeli statehood as the external instantiation of the collective self-determination right of the people of that state. Even this remarkably limited approach uh, to the rights of the Palestinian people is based on a series of legal concepts, external self-determination and the prohibition on annexation through the use of force, which have been placed under strain by the Trump administration's recognitions in relation to um, uh, the, the situation of Jerusalem in terms of the embassy, um, uh, and which of course has been maintained by the Biden administration, Israel's purported annexation of the Syrian Golan Heights, uh, Morocco's purported annexation of Western Sahara. There has been a degree of hand-wringing by international lawyers about these um, uh, decisions, notably when it came to the Golan recognition. But critics need to appreciate how close these policies are to the much more widespread position of ignoring or downplaying the significance of Palestinian external self-determination, notably when it comes to this right in international human rights law. It's also necessary to appreciate the relevance of the law on the use of force to the questioning of the existence of the occupation itself, as opposed to merely the implications it has for annexation. More fundamentally, it's necessary to appreciate the risk that framing such a criticism by affirming the legal status quo might operate as a distraction technique from appreciating some of the limitations of the current normative order. So to conclude, the common critique made of international law is that it may be all well and good, but it's not enforced because of power imbalances and politics. The arguments that I set out in, in the article and I've summarized today foregrounds the existence of such imbalances and political preferences in the law and the law's role in enabling them. It is, of course, for the Palestinian people to decide what is in their best interests in general, and as regards the deployment of international legal arguments and recourse to international legal mechanisms. 
what I've sought to do is identify some of the issues at stake with the general features of the legal system that might be relevant when such decisions are made. Thank you. Well, thank you, Ralph, for that very clear and precise presentation. Uh, you've been listening to uh, Dr. Ralph Weil, who has uh, spoken about using the master's tools to dismantle the master's house, international law and Palestinian liberation. Dr. Ralph Weil, member of the Faculty of Law at UCL, and this has been a webinar of the Council for British Research in the Levant. Please check us out on our website, uh, www.cbrl.ac.uk, where you can see forthcoming uh, webinars that we have planned. But otherwise, thank you to the audience and thank you to Dr. Uh, Wild for his, his talk and uh, have a great evening. All the best. Thank you.